This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. He is the producer of this past weekend's number one global grossing hit, Avatar, The Way of Water. We are here today on Crew Call with John Landau. Welcome, John. Thank you. Um, Here's the first question I have. Because even looking back at the 2009 Avatar, that was a big swing. Coming away from Abyss, which I know you didn't produce, but coming away from Abyss, what did... Jim learn because that was a big swing, advanced the whole CGI technology, but it didn't work at the box office. And then we're, you know, just the whole concept of aliens as protagonists seems like still a risky venture, but it works. What did he, what did he learn from Abyss and why does this concept still work? Why does this this franchise still work? I, I don't know that I could directly say what he learned because I wasn't there for that. So it's it's, it's hard to, to say that. But some of the choices that I think Jim made, you know, moving forward, let's just start out with the design of the Navi. Um, yeah, they're nine foot tall. They're, 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 they're blue. But in their faces, it's still very humanoid. It still allows you to make human connections with the emotional side of it. And I think that was one of Jim's foremost things in creating the Navi. We could have done a Cyclops. We could have done a mouth that goes the wrong way. We could have done any of those things. But as we got into designing it, he wanted to make characters that are relatable. So if you look at the design of the characters from the nose down, it's Sigourney. It's Zoe, it's Sam, and it's so on and so forth, so that we can get their emotional, you know, connections. He also, I think, found a way to strike the balance of a fantasy world, but one that is relatable. Um, I think when Jim wrote the original Avatar, the rainforests were supposed to be cyan in color. As we got into designing Avatar, that was a bridge too far. We had the floating mountains and we could get away with that. But in the forest, we think of forest as green. So we chose to accent that world with exotics, as we would call them. But still, the blush of the rainforest is one that is relatable to an audience. You're making these movies. I mean, where I mean, first of all, when COVID hit, how far along were you? We were right in this uh, pickle of a spot where we had done, as we were scheduled to do, half of our live action filming with a young boy, Jack Champion, playing Spider. And we were scheduled to come back in the new year in in February, March, to finish with him. And the pandemic hit. And every day we were not filming, 
Jack was growing. And there was going to come a point where he was going to grow out of matching anything that existed the prior year. And thanks to Bridget York, our associate producer in New Zealand, and Paul Anderson, who was our safety manager, they put together really the first uh, industry protocols of how to attack a production in a pandemic era. Jim and I put together a team of, of seven medical experts that consulted with us because we didn't want to do anything that, that, that put people in jeopardy. I remember we were scheduled to fly down to New Zealand and uh, made the call to say to the studio, look, we think we should delay it, in part because it was so unknown. I didn't want to separate parents from family. If we were only bringing down Maria Battle Campbell, who's our associate producer, first assistant director, pulling her away from her daughter and her sons and her husband, it didn't feel right in that moment in time. And we decided not to go. And very thankful because it turned out that New Zealand, the day after we would have arrived, went into a hard lockdown for eight weeks. We took those eight weeks to come up with our advice from our medical advisors, a plan, and we're able to be the first people back into New Zealand to continue filming. So you were only down eight weeks, technically. We, we were down probably, yes, because we, you know, it might've been a little bit, might've been 10 weeks. I don't, I don't want to, you know, somewhere in that window. But we, if, if we say that the, the pandemic really hit in force in, in March, right? We were filming in New Zealand in June. Now, were you concerned, you know, with the whole world getting turned upside down, streaming, dominating, were you concerned at any point in this game, cinema's gone, especially when theaters close? No, right? Um, I, I was concerned about the pandemic. Look, when, when, when theaters were closed and the pandemic was happening, my focus was on people. My focus wasn't on the, on the film business. It was like, hey, how do we make sure that we preserve enough, save enough lives and, and go back to some normalcy? But I felt once we did, that there'd be a craving for, for films. I, I remember reading, and I'm going to paraphrase here. It was a quote from the New York Times that it said, entertainment can be had today at a cut rate at home. And that's exactly the way people are going to see their movies. The entertainment business as we know it is going to die. That was in March of 1983. And I'm sure there was a similar article in February of 56 with television. And I'm sure there was, you know, so I think that, that it's great to have these different channels. Music, if I had to make an analogy in my mind, to the music industry. We can do Spotify, we can do Pandora, we can do all these other things. Nothing replaces the live concert. That's cinema, true. Cinema is that experience. Cinema is the live concert equivalent. And it's not just about the communal experience of it. It's about the social commitment that you make when you go to a movie. You make a commitment to turn off your phone. You make a commitment not to talk to the people you're around. And I think people crave being a part of that social system. Now, I saw this, I've seen this twice already. I saw it at the AMC Century City Dolby last week. Mm -hmm. From the moment of go, with the logo, with the 20th Century Studios logo, 
you have amped up 3D in a way. This is the best 3D ever. Well, thank you. What what did you, I what did you do in a nutshell? What did you, what kind of aesthetic discussion did you guys have? Because in my opinion, part three has to be a hologram. We need to be <laughs> sitting in the center and the action needs to take place around us. Or we need to figure out something to do with screen X. And I'll talk more about that with you. But what did you guys? How did you guys move? What was the discussion in moving the the in moving the meter from what you did to to now? The move, moving the meter was not in any one area. It was in a multitude of areas. Number one, it was learning from what we had done in the past. We've now made Avatar. We also made Alita Battle Angel in three D. We've learned from those, applying what we learned, creative sensibility. Three D can you think of it. As, as another tool to direct the audience of where to look. Just like you would look with lighting or motion or focus. 3D is one of those things and we try and always tie where we want someone to look to where our two cameras are converged. Beyond that, we said, okay, what are the artifacts that, that make 3D unpleasing? Strobing is one of them. So we challenged ourselves and, and, and Weta FX and the theaters to do it at a higher frame rate. But we don't do every shot at a higher frame rate because it doesn't improve the close-up, but it improves the shot going by the white picket fence. So we pick the shots where 48 frame enhances the 3D experience. We pushed you know, to use high dynamic range cameras to bring a more vivid image up onto the screen, higher resolution. So it's a combination of all of those things including what the projectors can now offer. When we did the first Avatar, I remember the, the year and a half leading up to it, I would go out to try and convince people to put in a 3D system. Nobody even knew how to do that. Now, the, thanks to digital projection, now thanks to laser projection, we're able to present a much higher quality in the cinema. The conceit for the third one, is it, is it in ice? Is it in snow? Has that That's been right. Okay. No, we're not talking about that. <laughs> but you had also mentioned, but are, are those conceits out there yet or no? They're not. No, look, what, what, what we've said and what we will do is we will continue to meet uh, new cultures on Pandora and we will continue to explore different biomes. Is this, was it intentional? Look, there are some danglers in, you know, of that course. we're left with. Um, we don't and that know was intentional. Well, we don't know Spider's mother. Um, we we also uh, don't know the father to Sigourney to Sigourney yeah, Weaver's yeah. child. Um, mm -hmm. But it wasn't a hard Empire Strikes cliffhanger. Can you talk about that? Yeah, look, I, I think what we really felt is that each movie of the four sequels needed to come to its own story conclusion and its own emotional resolution. We can leave dangling parts to be discovered later. And when you look at all the movies, they create an even larger epic connected saga. Uh, but that we, we did not need, at least for movie two, to have that, you know, a, a cliff favor. We wanted to tie everything up, but create a, a, a yearning, and we believe it exists, to want to see where do these characters go next. And one of the great things I think Jim did on these movies is he's not just telling the story of, of family from a parent's perspective. He's telling it from the kids. And you touched on that. 
Kiri and Spider and, and their journey and who they are and Loak, who feels like the outsider, all of these things. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. The other question I wanted to ask you is, a comedic filmmaker once told me, you know, when it comes to having a, a comedy kind of sitting on the shelf, he says, that's bad because it can get dated and you got to get it out there immediately. When it comes to a film like this that you are in production on for several years, is there, you, you, you're laying out the scripts in the beginning, but is there ever any concern that, oh my God, you know, things have gotten too old or do you rewrite? Are you, are you constantly rewriting? I, I think on these projects, we don't have to. I think if we did a, a story that was about the millennium and we delayed shooting it and we missed the millennium, you got problems. But what Jim has done in the Avatar Pandoran world, he has put in timeless stories with universal themes. This theme of family, this theme of, of these young teenagers, this thing of imperial forces coming back and invading an indigenous population, those things don't go away. In some ways, what he wrote X years ago is even more timely today. If you really think about this, the Sullies are refugees. They are forced to flee their home and seek refuge in a clan that doesn't look like them, that does, looks at them and says, you you'll be useless here. And that's what people in our world are struggling with too today, trying to save, find safe haven from you know, forces that are invading their countries for no reason. The other thing I wanted to ask you, yes, it has been and it has been again the highest grossing film ever at 2.9 billion. But it's a different type of franchise. It doesn't have the toys that Star Wars did. It has a theme park at Disney. Um, there's, you know, Lord of the Rings and Potter fans are made, you know, you know, they're, it's, it's like a religion with them. Was there ever any concern that, you know, waiting this long between sequels that you may have lost an audience or, or no? That the, the re-releases just kind of indicated well, things were good. Well, we spent it's a different a type of franchise. That's what I'm trying in, to. But, so I'm going to answer it two ways. One, because there's really two different questions in there. That, that, that yeah. I'll just deal with the release gap. You know, we were one third of the amount of time it took Maverick to come back. Mm hmm. <laughs> you know, movie, if you make a good movie, people are coming back. And, and we look at these movies, yeah, they're sequels, but we don't think of them as sequels. They're not like picking up on that cliffhanger that we left someone hanging. We're, we're telling a story, a new story based on those characters and that world. From a franchise IP standpoint, we don't have a lightsaber, right? We, we don't. We don't have a, a talking car. We, But... We, we offer people 
something different. We, we offer people Pandora, the world of Avatar. We, we did a touring show. I think it was Cirque du Soleil's most, you know, uh, accomplished touring show, Taruk, the first, you know, fl flight. And for us, we, we like those because we're, we're working with best in class brands and expanding the canon of our world. We're working now with Massive and Ubisoft on, on a video game, Frontiers of Pandora. It takes place in a different locale, but in the same time period as the first year of the sequel before we do the one year time gap. But it, so it doesn't conflict with what we're doing. So we're saying, what is it that people respond to on Avatar? And how do we associate those needs outside of it without having, you know, the gun or the, or the bow or, the, or, or those things? Now, going back to how you've amped 3D, um, coming, coming away from the first screening, I've told, you know, I've spread the word and I've said, it's not a movie. It's an experience. Given that, part three or even four or five, is there any discussion of real, you guys brought 3D back in 2009. I think you're going to bring it back again. But is there any discussion of amplifying the cinematic experience? Like there are some great technologies out there, like D-Box, like ScreenX. Is there any kind of discussion of exploiting those in a way that we haven't seen before with future sequels? Well, look, we are working with both of those companies now on, on this sequel. Uh, so we would like to continue to push the, the theater experience, as you call it. I, I, what I just said to someone last night is we want to change the paradigm from saying someone saying, I saw a movie to saying they experienced a movie. And being understanding what, what Screen X is offering, 4DX is offering, D-Box is offering, all those things, you know, you know is, is really great and exciting. You touched on holograms, and I just want to circle back to that. And I'm serious. I mean, I'm, 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 I'm sarcastic with people, but th this, after watching this movie, this has a, a way to go up. But, but, but I'm, what I'm going to be the counter to that for a second, why this movie works is because Jim Cameron directs you where to look. When you do a hologram, when you do VR, part of it is letting the user decide where to look. So I look forward to expanding the avatar IP in the virtual space, in the holographic space, but creating user experiences as opposed to a filmmaker-centric, here's what you should pay attention to. Can you talk about, because... Not many films are like this. And again, this is Avatar. It's James Cameron. It's a brand unto itself. But can you talk about this movie has survived a merger. It has survived several production executives that were overseeing it. Can you talk about that? That's pretty amazing. And not few films get to experience that. They usually die in, in, in the course of such um, revolution. You know, I think we approach our movies a little bit differently than most productions. Uh, we really view ourselves as a partner with our studio. And as, as, as opposed to, it's a studio production that we're just a part of. So when there's a transition in an executive, when there's a transition from company to company, we are the consistent stream through that as a partner. And we come into Disney and say, 
okay, we're now your partner. Let's approach this. But even before Disney acquired Fox, uh, Jim and I had breakfast with him and Tom Staggs, where we made the decision to go with Disney for a theme attraction around Pandora. So we had a relationship there. So we knew that. And, and you know, if the Murdochs were going to sell the company, there would be no better company that we could want them to sell to than Disney. And Alan Bergman and Assad and his team, they have been phenomenal to work with. John, thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Crew Call Podcast on Deadline. I'm your host, Anthony D'Alessandro. Make sure you subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode.